Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Institute for Government's conference on the reality of being a minister. Unfortunately, we cannot promise you Dominic Cummings' WhatsApps or Elon Musk's thoughts on AI, but I am hoping it will be a great day nonetheless. My name is Tim Durrant. I'm a programme director here, and I lead our work looking at how ministers do what they do, how they can be good at the job, and how the civil service working with them can support them to be most effective. Um, it's just really great to have so many people here. I think it's going to be a really interesting day and there's going to be lots of great discussions. Um, throughout the day, we're going to be tweeting from at IFG events uh, using hashtag IFG ministers. So please do follow and tweet along. And if you are on Blue Sky, uh, we have colleagues on there as well who will be posting on Blue Sky about the discussion too. So we are here to talk about the role of government ministers. What are the challenges of the role? What it means to do it well? What advice former ministers have for their successors? and uh, how the civil service can help them do the job well. We know that the role of a minister is like no other. They lead large organisations, but they have no ability to hire or fire the people working for them. They aren't necessarily appointed to the role because they have relevant experience or because they understand the subject area, but more often because they're from the correct wing of the party, because they're close to the prime minister, or because they impress the whips by asking a good question about something completely unrelated. When they do get into office, they're straight in at the deep end. They make decisions on key matters of government policy, they answer questions in the Commons, possibly on something they've only just heard of, and they're fending off requests from civil servants to sign off something that their predecessor had vetoed already. Ministers we talk to say that there's a steep learning curve, particularly after a change of government. They need to learn both the subject matter of their new portfolio and the reality of doing the job. So what powers do they have? Who can they ask for what? Which of the meetings in their diaries do they actually have to go to? And what do all the different civil servants they're in charge of spend their time doing? Once they've got up to speed with the role, there are many different aspects of the job. So it makes it quite difficult to say what it means to be good at a minister because there are lots of different skills they need. First and foremost, they have to make decisions, often without full information of what those decisions will mean and what the implications are, dealing with competing objectives and angry stakeholders and making many in a day. We hear a lot about uh, decision fatigue from ministers. They also have to be communicators to different audiences. They're talking to the media, they're talking to parliament, they're talking to officials, people in their own party, and of course, the public at large to ensure they can continue doing what it is they're trying to achieve. Ministers lead an organisation where, as well as not being able to hire or fire people and not knowing exactly what's happening in each part of the building, they do know that if something goes wrong, it could end their career. If they want to get promoted, they have to impress their colleagues, the whips, and ultimately the Prime Minister. And they have to do all of this while having hundreds of meetings on a huge range of topics and, for the majority of ministers who are MPs, thinking about their constituency and planning how to get re-elected at the next election. The IFG was set up to research and try to improve the effectiveness of government. We are interested in how government works and how it can work better. One key part of government, the ministers themselves, the people actually making the decisions, are actually quite hard to get close to and understand their reality. So, in 2015, after the end of the coalition government, some of my predecessors here, led by our former director, Sir Peter Riddle, who is somewhere here, uh, did a series of <laughs> exit interviews with those who had left ministerial office at that election. We then continued expanding the archive, going back to previous governments and continuing forwards with ministers who've left office in the last few years. Those interviews grew into our Ministers Reflect archive, which now contains over 150 interviews with ministers who've served under every PM from Thatcher to Truss. We asked them about their first day in office, how they choose their priorities, how they approach working with the civil service and with other key groups, what difficulties they face, how the political context affects what they're trying to achieve and what their proudest moments are. We also ask every minister what their advice is for, starting the, for those starting the role. So we have a huge bank of hints and tips for people who are hoping to be a minister in the future. The archive includes the reflections of many big names from recent years. We have uh, leaders including Tony Blair and Nick Clegg, big cabinet beasts like Michael Heseltine and Peter Mandelson. We have cabinet ministers from New Labour including Douglas Alexander, Hazel Blears and Estelle Morris. Ministers from the coalition, obviously, including Justine Greening, Nicky Morgan and Joe Swinson. And several from the recent governments overseeing Brexit and the pandemic, like Brandon Lewis, Robert Buckland, Chloe Smith, who we're going to be hearing from later, and Lord David Frost. And the interviews also include 24 interviews with former ministers from Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, including former First Ministers Carwin Jones, Alan Michael and Jack McConnell. 
Many of the themes that arise in those interviews are similar to the ones of ministers from Westminster governments. There's frustration with government process, there's the difficulty of managing everything and being on top of all of the different things you're in charge of, and there's also the importance of getting out of the office and understanding the reality of public service delivery. But the devolved ministers have another challenge to contend with, which is, of course, the relationship with Westminster itself. Over the course of today, we're going to hear a lot about different aspects of being a minister, as well as the different ways that people are using the interviews to further our understanding of these really important roles in government. The interviews cover a huge breadth of different aspects of being a minister, and I just want to give a flavour of some of what the interviews talk about. One of the sort of starkest things they talk about is the, the literal life and death decisions that ministers sometimes have to make. So Jeremy Wright spent a year as a junior minister before being promoted to attorney general, at which point he became responsible for advising on these kinds of decisions. They also talk a lot about the roles of ministers in a crisis. Jackie Smith here is talking about dealing with the Glasgow airport terrorist attack, which happened two or three days after she became Home Secretary in 2007. One of the recurring themes of the interviews is frustrations with how government works and how policy is made. Uh, Johnny Mercer told us about this complaint that he made to the Chief Whip because he did receive just such a text message while standing at the dispatch box in the Commons from someone telling him he couldn't say what he was going to say. Uh, I don't know if you know Johnny Mercer. He said it anyway. He didn't take the instruction. Um, but he, uh, it shows kind of some of the chaos of how policy is made in government. Every minister talks to us about what it's like being reshuffled uh, and waiting uh, for, for appointments, and indeed the arbitrariness of those appointments. So this is Caroline Dynage, who talked about waiting to be moved after the 2017 election, and she actually ended up in a job that, as she tells it, had nothing to do with her skills, knowledge, or ability. Um, which she was not impressed with. But the other thing that I really like about the Ministers Reflect interviews is that it's the behind-the-scenes stories that reveal that actually ministers are human just like the rest of us. So sometimes you don't care about getting a new job because you're in a piano bar on a Greek holiday island. And that's great, you know, and that's what, what is one of the benefits of these interviews is... These are real people doing incredibly difficult jobs, and the more we can kind of understand that, the more we can understand how government works. Uh, and with the COVID inquiry, perhaps, you know, understand why decisions get made in the way they get made. Um, one of the other big themes, though, uh, in, in the interviews is how difficult getting up to speed with the role is and how complicated it can be being dropped into a government department without understanding how things work and what exactly is expected of you. So this is Caroline Spellman talking about, she became DEFRA secretary at the start of the coalition in 2010 and talked about, for the new ministers who entered government at that point, none of them actually knew what the job entailed. And it's this that was partly the inspiration behind the IFG Academy, a new programme that we launched earlier this year. The Academy is all about helping those inside government get it working better and those outside government understand it better. We run workshops with individual ministers and their teams of advisors. Uh, we have a whole range of written resources for ministers, special advisors, and private office staff. And because everybody has a podcast, we also have some podcasts about what it's like to be a minister. Uh, if you haven't heard them, they are on our website. Um, we use these interviews from our archives <laughs> to inform that work with ministers and their teams because we know that one of the best ways to learn about a role is to learn from the people who've actually done the job themselves. People inside government, whether ministers, special advisors or civil servants, really love hearing the experience of ministers and it's perhaps cheering and disheartening in equal measure that many of the problems that people face nowadays are the same ones that ministers have been dealing with for decades. But the interviews also inform our wider research problem, uh, program. So when you're thinking about how well the Treasury works, having the reflections of three chancellors and three chief secretaries, as well as many former junior ministers, is incredibly helpful. We have interviews with people who are at the front line of making the coalition work, with people who made key decisions during Brexit, and with people who are dealing with the pandemic response. So having that, that background is incredibly valuable uh, to our wider research program. Uh, and the interviews also informed, I want to give a name check to Peter's book, on what it's really like to be a minister, which is called 15 Minutes of Power, and is well worth a read if you're interested in this kind of thing. But this is just some of the ways we use our interviews, and these are just some of the stories we have, and some of the aspects of being a minister. 
The archive has now grown, as I said, to over 150 interviews, and we'll be publishing more in a couple of weeks. And we know it's being used by academics, by journalists, by civil servants, by teachers, and others with an interest in how the UK and devolved governments work or don't work, and what the people at the top of them actually spend their time doing. We also know people are starting to do similar things internationally. So later on today, we're going to hear about similar programs running in other countries. And we've also been in touch with some Singaporean civil servants and some Australian academics in the last few weeks who are thinking about starting their own programs. So it's really great to see it kind of expanding across the world. As well as expanding our interviews, the last few years in UK politics have been pretty tumultuous. And obviously, last year, we had three prime ministers, four chancellors, and five education secretaries. Uh, including one who was in the role for a day and a half. So there's been a huge amount of turnover of ministers uh, at all levels, not just at the top of the government, all the way down. And those in office were dealing with those big era-defining issues of Brexit, the pandemic, and of course now the implications of the war in Ukraine for the UK's economy. So there's this big picture politics that's been going on uh, the last few years that gives us a lot to talk about. But there's also been a real focus on the workings of government. I think Brexit and the pandemic exposed huge problems in the way the UK government works, and people really are taking an interest in what has gone wrong and how can it be fixed? And it's raising questions about what is the right balance of power between the executive and the legislative, uh, the legislature. How, how do ministers and civil servants work well together and what happens if they don't, as we were hearing yesterday from Dominic Cummings? Uh, and how can special advisors best help their ministers? So all of this turnover and all of these kind of big questions have given us a lot of people to talk to and a lot of things to ask them about. And that's why we wanted to hold this conference, to get together some of the people who've been thinking about what's been going on in government and those who are doing interesting work with the interviews and think about what we've learned about how government has worked, how the role of ministers has changed, and what else we should be asking those who we interview in the future. We also just want to draw attention to the fantastic resource that is our archive and think about how else it can be used by those people here online and elsewhere who are interested in how government works. Over the course of today, we're going to hear much about the role of ministers, what the challenges are, and how they can do it well. We've got some great panels covering how the civil service can work well with ministers after this, what academics can learn from the interviews, how the long-form interviews have been exported around the world, and then we're going to close this afternoon with a final discussion looking at how the role has changed, how it might change in the next few years, and what it means to do the job well in the 2020s. There are also plenty of opportunities for networking and discussion. There's going to be coffee all through the day. Um, I'm really looking forward to chatting to people here about what they think about the role of ministers and how you think we can do this work better and further. There are also plenty of IFG colleagues around. We've all got name badges on. Uh, so please do chat to, chat to my colleagues as well about the interviews, about the work of the Institute, the IFG, and our research more broadly. Uh, I will close here and just say thank you for coming, and I hope you have a great day. And we are going to move straight smoothly on to our first discussion when we're going to hear from Leighton Andrews. So for those of you who don't know, Leighton was a minister in the Welsh Government covering the education and skills and public services briefs from 2009 to 2016, and is now Professor of Practice in Public Service Leadership and Innovation at Cardiff University. Leighton is going to talk about his own work using Ministers Reflect to understand the role of ministers, and then he and I will have a bit of discussion before opening up for questions. So please do start thinking of things you'd like to ask. And those online, please do send in your questions via Slido, uh, which is being moderated, and I will bring in as many online questions as possible. So, Leighton. Thanks very much indeed, Tim. Um, it's very good to be here. Uh, I am a great fan of the Institute for Government, let me say, uh, and I make considerable use of the Ministers Reflect archive in uh, my teaching and my research. So in a sense, I'm going to talk about the value uh, of the archive and my use of it. Uh, and I want to um, reflect on it, really, in the context of three aspects. First, uh, the archive as a resource of practice. Second, as a resource for teaching. And third, as a resource uh, for research. Um, the, the archive is... I, I think quite unique. It's publicly available. Uh, it enables people to make contrasts and draw distinctions between uh, how different ministers have uh, approached their roles. But it allows you to draw generalizations as well because of the range of interviews that are taking place. It explains how ministers see the world. It explains the assumptions they have. 
but you can also see that there are some things that they take for granted and don't actually spend a lot of time talking about. And those, that really requires you to read a bit between the lines. As Tim said, I'm an interview of record, interviewee of record myself. Uh, and I think one of the interesting things, if you look at the interviews in the devolved administrations, is there is, uh, in some of those, quite a lot of emphasis on institution building. Uh, and that, in itself, uh, has, has, has aspects which I don't think are often considered in wider discussion of government in the UK. Now, the archive, of course, has a normative purpose. What does it uh, mean to be an effective minister is really at the core of uh, uh, the rationale, if you like, for the archive. Um, and there are gaps and limitations in it. And one of the most obvious is that there is not a gender balance in it, though that has improved in recent years. Frankly, some of the interviews are more valuable than others. Uh, but I think overall, it is a genuinely valuable resource. Um, all ministers have backstories. Uh, they don't necessarily come out in the interviews themselves, apart from peripherally as people talk about using their prior experience to act as ministers. This is my backstory, if you like, my journey of practice. I became a politician in 2003, and I was appointed as a minister in the Welsh Government in 2007. But I'd had a 27-year journey before that, when I was observing ministers, meeting with ministers, uh, and taking part in discussions with ministers. I found some notes that I was currently going through, preparing the book I'm, I've, I've just uh, finished on, on ministerial leadership, of my first meetings with UK ministers as a student politician on behalf of the National Union of Students in 1980. They're not particularly useful, let me say, for research purposes. They tell me that Mark Carlyle was largely chain-smoking through our meeting, not something I think you'd normally see these days in a ministerial meeting and that Rhodes Boyson was, in, was amused by the fact that I was the only student on the National Union of Students delegation that was meeting with him. Um, but I spent 20 years in and around Westminster. I was the BBC's uh, head of uh, public affairs, responsible for relations with the UK and European parliaments. I set this out here um, in order to say, to ask the question, did any of this really help me become a minister? Uh, and I would argue, no, it wasn't my prior career experience that helped me become a minister. It was my activity as a politician in the National Assembly. I wrote this book on my time as education minister, what I call my gap year from government uh, in between ministerial jobs. Uh, for the academics who were around, let me say, I, didn't, I lacked the academic language around practice in writing that, uh, but I did reflect on the role of ministers. But the first distinction I want to make today is that ministers are largely appointed because of their prior political and particular, particularly parliamentary activity. But when they become ministers, it, they bring their prior career experience to the way they think about that ministerial role. In my own case, I was appointed by Rodri Morgan as Deputy Minister for Housing. Do I think that Rodri had at the top of his mind the fact that I had been a member of the pre-devolution Quango Housing for Wales, appointed by William Hague? No. Do I think Rodri even knew that I'd been campaign director of a homelessness charity? No. I think it was, there was a slot. I was somebody who had made a contribution in the assembly, and therefore he gave me that role. And you notice, those of you who read Rory Stewart's very entertaining memoir recently, will notice the dawn, slow dawning of realization uh, that, uh, that he makes, that uh, his prior experience as a, a governor of a region in Iraq has very little relevance to his role as a politician uh, and what he might subsequently contribute. The archive is a superb teaching resource, let me say, because it illustrates a number of aspects of ministerial life, uh, it illustrates the relationships between ministers, their private offices, other, other parts of the civil service, the sectors within which they work, their relations with other cabinet members, uh, their role in policy making, their need to perform as ministers from the day they are appointed, 
Uh, and of course, it gets, with some of the ministers, it talks a bit about their experience of leaving office. I teach a postgraduate course on ministerial life, government from the inside, from the minister's viewpoint. We make extensive use of those resources. It's a very contemporary uh, course, let me say. Esther McVeigh resigned in the one, in middle of one of our seminars. A bit rude of her, I thought, but there we are. We had a student who was keeping up to date with news alerts from Sky News, so we were able to segue into a discussion, discussion of that. Liz Truss actually resigned on the morning of one of my seminars, which was a lot more helpful in terms of timing and preparation. But we've been, we're now into the seventh year of teaching, uh, and 120 or so students have taken that module over time. We normally end with a seminar on ministerial leadership, and I'm sure that Simon Casey's WhatsApps will be very useful to the discussion uh, that we will be having in a few weeks' time. Uh, and just to illustrate some of the essays that people have uh, delivered uh, in the course of uh, the, the seven years that we've been teaching, they get into very practical discussions. They often have to make use of uh, the Ministers Reflect archive in order to do this. Let me say that the comparative analysis of Michael Gove and Leighton Andrews as education ministers got excellent marks, <laughs> which I'm very pleased were upheld by the moderator and the external examiner. Um, but as a research resource, I've just completed a book on ministerial leadership, which is now with the publisher. Um, and I think that what they do as a research archive, they both illuminate uh, concepts that have been around in the uh, academic and more general political literature for a while, the, particularly on the relationship between ministers and officials, the public service bargain, the concept of the Westminster model, and so on. But they've also opened up new ways of looking at different aspects of government life. I'll come on to that a bit uh, in, in, a, in a moment. Um, and I've made use of the archive not only in, in writing that book, but also in some uh, uh, journal articles, for example, on the making of the Welsh government. Uh, I am not, not a political scientist. My academic training was as a historian. Um, I'm interested in political practice. I'm not so much interested in uh, political science as such. So, the archive, I think, gives us a practice-led approach to looking at the questions of how ministers act in leadership. Uh, and I think this is quite a contrast to the way it's been treated traditionally uh, in political science. So my book examines ministers' position in leadership from their appointment, their development of their understanding of that role in leadership, and their leadership as practice. And they are involved in a number of different kinds of leadership departmental leadership, as Tim said, but it's really a dual leadership with uh, the senior civil servants. They're involved in orchestrated collective leadership and teamwork as members of a cabinet or as ministers in a government system. They are seen as system leaders in particular areas, such as educational health, the, and they're endorsed in that role by the journals that circulate, by the organizations that invite them to contribute. They take leadership in decision-making. There are a number of uh, examples throughout the archive of how they try to preserve time in order to focus on their priorities and of course they are performing leadership uh, throughout their roles from day one. And the uh, interviews now give us I think a, a very good insight into the perceived gendered nature of ministerial leadership uh, since some of the more recent interviews have been uh, published. So. For the purpose of the book, if we are under, to understand ministerial leadership, we need to understand ministerial practice, what ministers do. Uh, and I focus in the book on the practices, not, the, not so much the practitioner. Being a minister is not a profession, okay? It's not a profession. Um, it is arguably more like bricolage than anything else, but some uh, more experienced ministers, you may say, who've been around for a few decades, you might, might well argue that they have established uh, ministering as a craft, what I call ministering as a craft. Um, and one of the things that ministers throughout the interviews demonstrate is that they are continually trying to assert against the department's pressures or the private office's pressures their role also as parliamentarians, their role also as constituency representatives, and indeed their role also as family members. Uh, and they want to 
ensure also that they have the time to pursue what I call their activist agenda. So in terms of the book, ministers, there are certain artifacts that you get when you become a minister. The title, for one thing, a private office, a departmental pass, or in the case of the Welsh Government, a pass for the fifth floor where the ministerial offices are. These things are granted to you on appointment. They are rather brutally removed, potentially on exit at the end of the day. Ministers perform in a number of different spaces and therefore they have to wear a number of different masks. Chamber, committee, cabinet, out in the public and different organized groups. And there are certain routines in ministerial life that ministers talk about in the interviews. The focus on time management, the need to impose their will on departmental correspondence, that it comes out in the form they like to see. They talk about their delivery mechanisms and their approaches to decision making. And there is, I think, a ministerial mindset, and you can see how that ministerial identity becomes shaped over time. Sometimes in the academic literature, I think it's forgotten that ministers are ac activists, and there is a logic to activism. Ministers want to make a difference, uh, and many of them have experiences before becoming ministers in other for forums, such as, at, say, council leaders, where they've actually had a hands-on experience of doing that. And there is a ministerial life cycle. Uh, as well. Of course, we now know that practice can be improved. There's a wonderful quote from Michael Heseltine back in 1987. The untrained minister can remain untrained. Men in, and women in middle life on whom the favour of the voters and the party leader has fallen for a season of uncertain length have neither the time nor inclination to take induction courses. Well, we now know, of course, that Michael Kesseltine is, is a huge believer in induction courses for ministers and has contributed to them for the Institute for Government. But I do wish I'd seen this, this uh, article before I wrote the chapter in my book on decision-making. One flight over Blighty was all it took to rip up historic counties, says Hesseltine. One of the academic readers of, of the book said I had to say a little bit about the uh, contribution I, it seeks to make. Firstly, it is an account of leadership in practice. Secondly, I think it provides a, a, a slightly different take on the relationship between ministers and civil servants today. What comes through the, the Ministers Reflect interviews is a growing emphasis, I think, on the importance of delivery and implementation uh, over and above the policy or against, set alongside the policy-making role. So that focus by ministers on delivery and implementation has been growing over time. That does not, of course, mean that delivery has got better. There are also, significant, significantly, and this comes out from quite senior former ministers, David Willits, David Liddington, Oliver Letwin, Alistair Darling, a real concern about organisational memory in the civil service. And organisational memory, if you want to preserve the stewardship role of the civil service, i.e. the role that exists beyond a single government, that organisational memory is really important. I was very fortunate to benefit, but I had to take a local government uh, act through the uh, assembly as it was, um, that I was able to draw on a civil servant who had been involved in the local government reforms carried out 30 years earlier by John Redwood in Wales. Uh, and that was very beneficial because it gave me the background uh, of what had gone on and why some of those conclusions have been made. And I do think that organisational memory issue is, is significant. Ministers are activists, as I said, and that logic of activism underpins their ministerial purpose uh, and it gives them a belief uh, in agency, and they talk very much about what they are doing, of course. These ministerial narratives, that, though, that they give us in the Institute for Government Ministers Reflect series are set in a con context of their shared belief in the model of the Westminster system. I take a non-judgmental <coughs> approach in the book to uh, ministerial ministers and what they've done to ministerial practice. But the book does ask in passing whether uh, the system itself has provo provokes a default to legislation, whether there is an addiction to crisis, uh, and that may be partly, of course, because the interviews all ask ministers about their experience of dealing with a crisis, 
And frankly, not all of the answers uh, give examples of real crises in the information that's brought forward. And the third point I, would, I, I, I mentioned in passing is, is there a bias against the long term uh, in our governmental systems? And does that come through in the interviews? I think it does. The book's interdisciplinary. There are lots of people I need to thank for giving their comments, uh, people who've read it uh, on my behalf. I also want to thank the Institute for Government, Tim Durrant, Catherine Haddon particularly, and also Peter uh, for uh, his insights uh, on how the archive was formulated in the first place. And I've obviously given contributions on this before. So my thinking is I'm, I was a minister. I had a, I had a lengthy apprenticeship in political uh, understanding before going into elected politics. Uh, and I now use these archives um, right, with my students in teaching uh, and in research. I'm delighted to be here today and thank you uh, for inviting me. Thank you very much, Leighton. So I'm going to ask a couple of questions and then we will open to the audience. So you talked about uh, how ministers bring their kind of prior experience into the role and you also talked about when they're in the role, they develop their understanding of what it means to be a minister. How much do you think you can actually, if, if politicians are ambitious to be ministers, how much do you think they can actually prepare for the role beforehand and how much of it is learning on the job? Well, I, I think it's quite interesting if you look at what people say about was their, was their experience in opposition really very useful for them becoming ministers? And they say up to a point on the whole. You know, some of them will say, yes, you know, it meant I had a, a, an understanding of the subject, but I didn't understand the pressures, the demands, uh, the constant need to be making decisions day in, day out. So I don't think anything particularly can prepare you for that. But what can help, of course, is learning from other ministers, listening, talking, some level of induction. And that needs probably to be more formalized than it has in the past, but it's been good to see how this has happened. On the other hand, I would say, of course, politicians observe. Mm. You know, if they're in the chamber, if they're in committee, uh, they are watching ministers perform, and they will watch ministers perform in some cases very well, uh, in some cases less well. Uh, and that's said, frankly, by some of your interviewees who are PPSs or WHIPs, particularly, in terms of their learning experience. So I think there is observation, um, but at the end of the day, you know, you get your first uh, ministerial box in Westminster, uh, you have your range of demands on your ministerial iPad these days in Wales, you know, I think those things you, you will improve through your practice. And you talked as well about um, kind of the changing role of the minister and maybe they get more involved in delivery. I was wondering if you could say a bit more about that and do you think the civil service has adapted to that interest from ministers? Well, I think... Um, I think this comes through so many of the interviews. Um, and if you look particularly, say, at David Freud, Lord Freud, talking about the implementation of the development and implementation of universal credit, uh, the challenges that were brought forward by different levels of experience, different levels of, uh, by people moving jobs, you know, these things are said repeatedly in some of the, some of the other interviews. I think the other aspect that we see is that ministers talk about delivery mechanisms they use, you know, red, amber, orange uh, tracking sheets, what other kinds of trackers that they use, um, having regular meetings to keep them appraised of how policies are being implemented or how major, major programs uh, that are being procured uh, are being implemented. There is a much greater emphasis on that, I think, in the interviews that you conduct than in the certainly in the previous academic literature suggests. Um, so I think ministers are more concerned about this. Now, what does that do? Um, I think that does change the relationship between ministers and civil servants, actually. Uh, I think it means that um, there is a sense in which uh, dissatisfaction with performance, dissatisfaction with civil servants being moved around, all of these things come out in, in the interviews. So I think ministers are getting very much more focused on the delivery aspect uh, and are starting to raise questions about whether the current, well, not are starting, have been raising questions over time as to whether uh, the current system is working for them or for the British people. And, you know, we see that in Dominic Cummings' evidence, right? 
between all the swear words, there was a, a diagnosis that the state it does not have the capacity to deliver some of the things that the government wanted to do, and they couldn't deal with, with the crisis that hit. Um, yeah, the biggest one of the biggest dangers of Dominic Cummings is that the ferocity of his argument sometimes may detract from the, yeah. the content. No, this is the point we've made. Uh, the IFG, we agree with a lot of his points, but it's, as you say, it's how he makes them and tries to convince people to change. Um, okay, so let's talk about the human side of things. So you said ministers, you know, they want to focus on their family, they want to focus on their parliamentary background, their constituency, as well as the kind of day job. Um, maybe from your own experience of doing the role, but also from the interviews, do you think the civil service gets that? Do you think the government machines across the UK allow ministers to have those dual hats or multiple hats? Yeah, I think it's hard to make comparisons between institutions. You know, in terms of the parliamentary role, uh, the private offices in the, uh, in, in the, in the Senate would have uh, the televisions on, watching their ministers, answering questions, taking part in debates in committees. Um, private offices, I imagine, these days, uh, UK government departments, you know, are tracking what their ministers are saying as well. Um, but, but I think that, you know, in, in the Senate, ministers walk down from the fifth floor into, into the next building, which is the Senate chamber, then they go back to their departments in and out. The Chief Whip expects them to be in the chamber for longer than ministers are expected to be in the Westminster chamber. Um, so, but there is a more direct hands-on relationship in that way. They are seeing it you know, immediately because there isn't a sudden move from a department somewhere in Whitehall across to, across to uh, the, the House of Commons. Um, I, I think that these pressures are not always understood. I was quite struck by how a number of ministers talked about um, you know, uh, coming back to the office, say, in the evening, or you know, their, their staff would sometimes leave, they would, uh, have, they would then go themselves to the Commons and spend several hours longer there. So there is a, still a bit of a disconnect. I'm struck also uh, by a number of ministers, I think Damien Green is one who talks about having to explain the parliamentary end of the minister's work in some detail to uh, officials, not so much in the private office, but elsewhere in, in the department. And yeah. So I think those things are, are going on. I think there is, you know, it's part of the learning curve on both sides there. Okay, and final question from me before I open up. So what are the pros and cons of these kinds of archives, uh, like the Minister's Reflect archive, and perhaps a slightly leading question, but do they risk only telling one side of the story? Um, well, inevitably, they only tell one side of the story, and I mean, I, I you know, I would not rely uh, on them for uh, anything I was writing on their own. Um, particularly, say, if, if I was looking at the development of a policy, if I was looking at development of universal credit as a policy, I wouldn't just rely on the accounts of Ian Duncan Smith or Lord Freud or indeed Lord Freud's book. I would want to. Uh, look at other, other aspects of others as well. What they, what they have done for my purpose, I think, is they demonstrate a collective way of talking about the practice of being a minister, and I think that you can take. But even then, I would want to set that against the archives. You know, I, I have several references to historical documents from the National Archives, from the Thatcher Archive, um, other, other sources, um, and other previous research by, uh, by other academics as well. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Okay, so questions. So we've got a roving mic. Uh, please wait for the microphone, say who you are and what organisation you're from, if you feel able. Uh, and I think I'll take the two or three questions. Uh, lady at the front here. Hi, thank you very much. That's really interesting. I'm really looking forward to the book as well when it comes out. Um, I'm Emma Peplow. I'm um, Head of Contemporary History at the History of Parliament Trust, and I oversee our oral history project. Um, which is interviewing former MPs. And so I was really struck by what you said about how some interviews are more valuable than others, and that's very much the case in our archive, I have to say. Can you tell me what you think makes a good interview from someone who's used them so extensively? What is it that makes it a good and useful interview for you? Well, I think it's the... I'll take a couple of questions. Oh, sorry, then, sorry. Yeah. Uh, Peter, and then... Yeah, uh, Peter Riddle. Um, Leighton, I really look forward to reading your book. I, I think it's um, moved ahead of Nadine Doris's book on my list of <laughs> books to read. Um, I, I don't want, the, the point I want to make doesn't imply any disagreement with either what you or Tim have said. Just a point of amplification, and you, I'm very interested you touched on Michael Heseltine, because we did an earlier bit of research before Minister Reflect going back on what makes an effective minister. And Michael Heseltine was named by virtually everyone's civil servants' ministers as the 
example of an effective minister. And one of the questions which touched on something you said at the beginning was the prior experience. And those who'd worked in big organisations, mm. I wonder, gives them an advantage um, in actually working in enormous Whitehall departments. And the, the only other point I want to make, which is in a sense implicit, because we just take it for granted, is the massive turnover of ministers. Mm. I mean, I, in my own experience, after leaving here as Public Appointments Commissioner, which I did for five and a half years, I dealt with seven ministers in Whitehall. One for three weeks. Very nice man. We never, we only just said hello. But in contrast, I was also a commissioner for Wales, and I dealt with one minister in that five and a half years, Jane Hutt, um, who was excellent. Um, but that, the impact, I mean, it was at the end of what you were saying, Tim, of the massive turnover, because it does take time to get up to, up to speed. And that, I mean, you could say, all right, it's not an exceptional period. Well, we hope it's an exceptional period. But the impact of that possibly overshadows everything else. Brilliant, thank you. Yeah. And then gentleman behind there. My name is Paul Joyce from the International Institute of Administrative Sciences. Um, I was very interested in your approach where you base much of it on activities, very focused on activities. And I wondered what problems, what two, three or four key problems emerge from those activities for the ministers. Um, and picking up the last point about the high turnover in the UK of ministers, does that bias the type of problems they experience? If they're only in a post for a year or a year and a half, does the problem of knowing what to do become preeminent? Thank you very much. So, what makes a good interview? Uh, does prior experience in big organisations give an advantage to ministers? And what is the impact of all the turnover we've seen? And then what are the big problems that ministers identify? And does that high turnover actually uh, emphasise certain types of problems? Sure. Um, I mean, looking at the the archive, I mean, I would say the most you know the most valuable interviews are those where people uh, reflect with as much honesty as they can bring to the process, uh, and they give consideration to the questions that are being asked, uh, and they go into some detail on uh, and br bring forward examples from their own experience. Um, there are one or two interviews. I'm not going to name the interviewees where. Um, you could assume that no problem had ever occurred on that minister's watch. Um, and there are some interviews where you do get the impression that, to be honest, the former minister would like to get out of the room as soon as possible. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think it's that willingness to try and reflect and be honest. Um, Peter, I thought it was a really interesting point about large organisations, because in my own experience, I would say the thing that was probably most useful to me was having worked in the centre of the BBC for a period of time. And, and you know, the BBC has some of the, uh, uh, certainly did then in the 90s uh, under John Burt, some of the challenges that governments themselves face in, in terms of coordination, uh, execution, um, uh, contrasting cultures within and, and so on and so forth. So certainly from my point of view. Um, I, there are a very limited range of former ministers in the interviews who have been ministers over decades. So Michael Heseltine, Ken Clark, David Howell, I guess, um, William Hay, and William Hay's not in the interviews, but, but there are, you know, the, the, and those are the ones, you know, who have, can bring previous ministerial experience to, their, to, to, to the job and are able to use that. There is no question that ministerial turnover is a subject of great comment in the archive. And people are particularly critical, including former New Labour ministers, of the pace of change uh, and uh, of reshuffling uh, under Tony Blair, for example. That comes through quite extensively. And then there's, uh, they, they are more complimentary about, people are more complimentary about Cameron, for example, for reshuffling uh, less. So that is, that is stated. And I think that's, that's an interesting element. You know, I was, in my role as education minister, three and a half years, I think that was you know, a good kind of time frame. Below that, I think it's more challenging in terms of uh, times that you ha time that you have. Um, in terms of some of the, the problems that come forward, um, there is a big emphasis on time, finding time, finding time to think. You know, that comes throughout. Uh, and you know, I've written a chapter on, on time management by ministers, actually, as a result of this. Because I think people, 
I think it becomes, it's become now part of ministerial folklore. You know, Gerald Kaufman may have been one of the first people to, to highlight this in, in 1980 in his book, but it, it is now part of ministerial folklore that they have to find time for them, their own priorities and they have to make time in the diary. I was struck by what a number of ministers, former ministers, had to say about dealing with departmental correspondence uh, and the, uh, the actual inadequacies they felt uh, in the way that those things were being handled and the way they had to impose their own will on that as well, which I hadn't you know, expected to reflect on, but I do end up reflecting a bit on that. But the, you know, the, I think the biggest, biggest one, in a sense, may be organisational memory. I do think this is coming forward more and more. And it's, this does bear very much on the stewardship role of civil servants. In New Zealand, um, uh, it's been, I think the whole concept of stewardship has now been set out in legislation, that there is a responsibility uh, process for civil servants going beyond the single uh, administration. Uh, and a former Welsh Government civil servant, Dr Megan Mathias, has written a, a very good doctoral dissertation on civil servants and their approaches to decision-making in New Zealand and in Wales, where she talks about two kinds of leadership by civil servants. One is around the agenda of their ministers, and the other is around the stewardship um, of the public interest, if you like, I suppose, going forward. Uh, and I do think that that... Uh, the approach that's taken in New Zealand may, be well, 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 may well be one we should reflect on here in terms of that legislating for that. Well, and uh, I mean, thank you for giving us an in. There is a, an IFG recommendation on legislating for the civil service and providing it with a proper statutory basis which would tackle some of that points around, you know, what is its role beyond the immediate administration that is serving. Um, brilliant, thank you. I would like to take another round of questions in the room and then we will go online. So, lady in blue here. Thank you. Julia, soon to be private office in the Home Office, so this is really interesting for me. I was particularly interested to hear what you had to say about um, declining organisational memory and um, perhaps the stewardship role of the civil service changing. So why? I would just like to probe a bit further into why you think this is and recommendations for what we can do to improve this, because this seems pretty serious. Great, thank you. Uh, gentleman here in glasses? Thank you, and thanks very much for a really interesting um, presentation. Um, I'm Edward Robinson. I am a consultant, and I work very largely in the environmental sector, which is a sector that is affected a lot by long-term decisions, but is not always um, kind of in the news for, for policy areas. I just wondered, ministers have a responsibility, obviously, to speak in Parliament and to go to committees, and there's scrutiny levels there, which are relatively high, I think, personally, um, in Britain. Um, but then they also have a responsibility to sort of follow the media cycle and the news cycle, and that, I think, tends to be a bit more on a short-term, somewhat more capricious sort of cycle. And um, I tend to feel that sometimes that's, that's, that's prioritised a bit over the parliamentary um, responsibilities, in a sense, and may, maybe, maybe SPADs and others in departments perhaps slightly um, inculcate that sense. What do you think about that, and um, is there anything that essentially could be done to rebalance it, if, that's, if, it, if it is indeed true. Thank you very much. Uh, here on the aisle, and then we'll do another round at the back. Thank you. I'm Rasika. I'm a civil servant myself, currently in DLUC. And uh, thank you very much for that presentation. And my question comes from, uh, I've always worked in crisis roles. I've, I've been a civil servant for a couple of years. And uh, ever since the beginning, I've always worked in crisis roles. So naturally, there's been a lot more scope for interaction with the ministers than traditionally or technically people would be. But uh, my question today is from the point of view that if you're a new starter, in a typically tradition, we've just touched on correspondence. And if you're working in a central correspondence team, team so to speak, uh, that's, a, that's a very elusive role that's still called private office. But you don't have that sort of interaction with the minister, or if you're working outside of the private office area, how, you are ultimately working to your minister and the executive team, but how do you humanize them? How do you get to know them hmm. if you're not directly reporting or working to them on a regular basis? Thank you very much. Brilliant, thank, thank you. you. So why is organizational memory declining and what can we do about it? Uh, is short-termism and kind of messaging being prioritized over proper parliamentary responsibilities? And how can civil servants who don't interact daily with ministers humanise them? Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, organizational memory, um, I had not given a lot of thought to this before I started reading the archive, to be honest, because although I have one memory from my own experience, which was when I became Education Minister in Wales in December 2009, within a few months, I suddenly found uh, the Times Educational Supplement reciting deadlines that the Welsh Government had set in a previous document before I'd even been in the National Assembly, uh, which I'd not been alerted to by my officials. So we were going to achieve this by 2010, or we were going to achieve that by 2011. So nobody had been clearly tracking the commitments that had been made in previous policy documents. But I think the evidence from the archive of what ministers say is, is a real frustration that civil servants are very, and I don't know how true this is, but it certainly comes through in the way ministers talk about it, are very often now moved around regularly, sometimes because it's the only way that they can get promoted. You know, so they'll do two years in a row, then they'll move to another role. Uh, and when what is really needed is that kind of deep learning um, and deep experience of a subject uh, that is really beneficial uh, to the department, uh, to the minister, to uh, the wider public interest. So that certainly comes out throughout the, the interviews. Uh, and you know, that's, I think, something that departments need to look at, maybe the civil service needs to look at as well. Is it true? Um, and is it, uh, but is it part of that problem? Um, the, the whole issue of short-term is in the media cycle. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, Rod, Rod Rhodes' uh, brilliant ethnographical study of ministerial life, every, everyday life in British government, talks about the media seeking to impose its kind of deadlines uh, on, on government and on, on political life. And that he was writing before, well, his, his experience in ethnography was before we had Facebook, WhatsApp, and, and, and so on and certainly Twitter. Um, so it, I think it's been around for a while now, and you, know, you constantly hear ministers talking about sometimes the difficulty of holding on to your own priorities, particularly in a media storm. Um, and sometimes, of course, that is about your relationship with other ministers. It's about your relationship with the center, possibly with the prime minister or first minister, uh, and how their priorities, of course, may also depend on their perception of how the media is working. Dominic Cummings makes uh, a lot of this, you know, that some ministers uh, can be particularly distracted by uh, media events that really won't matter in six months, six months' time. So I do think that's, uh, that's an issue. I think your point, it's a really interesting point about um, correspondence and, and how can, you know, you're making a more general point about how can civil servants without day-to-day -day contact. I mean, I do think that maybe, you know, I would, I would go out and I would have an office in not only the Senate building, but also in the main headquarters of the civil service in Wales in Cattay's Park. Uh, and therefore I would be around and I would be meeting, meeting civil servants. But there are certain, uh, and some of the ministers talk about going out to see uh, departmental offices in Runcorn or wherever around the, the UK. And then there are, of course, uh, in some departments like DWP, you have you know, job centres in virtually every high street. So they, they make a big thing about those kinds of visits. But some of the central administrative teams, like correspondence, that probably doesn't happen. And yet a lot of ministers will talk about the, how the way they respond to a letter, particularly, say, to a member of parliament, or to a member of pu pu the public, as Margaret Beckett does in, in, in one of the things she uh, says, um, can really make an impact on the way the minister is perceived. So that whole sense of correspondence is actually part of ministerial performance. You know, it's about how ministers are performing to different audiences, and it's really important. So it is therefore important that the uh, ministers have a relationship with that section, with the correspondence section, there is real understanding uh, of what ministers are looking for. And Peter Hayne, I know, talks about in, in one of the interviews, not, not, uh, he doesn't, hasn't done an interview for you, but in, a, in a, an interview for the Fabian Society, uh, about trying the, the importance of spotting things in letters um, that might be going to backbench MPs that could be political dynamite and so on. So there is a, a kind of relationship that perhaps should be cultivated. Yeah, brilliant, thank you. Uh, okay, we've got five minutes left, so one final round of questions. If I can ask, okay, the two questions at the back here, if you can keep them brief, and I will bring in some questions from online as well. Thanks very much. My name's Ken Thompson from the Scottish Government, where in 35 years I've inducted quite a lot of ministers, uh, and so much of this rings true. But I, I will um, respond to Tim's 
request and just ask a short question. Implicit in what you both said was perhaps the uh, idea of the minister as, as it were, the chief executive. Is there also a role for the minister as being the client for the services of the department? Brilliant, thank you. Nice I've got a follow-up question which is around accountability. Uh, you shared a quote earlier on um, from uh, Johnny Mercer around a faceless spad sending a text and seeking to change policy at, at will. I'd be interested in reflections around accountability for ministers. So in a world where um, particularly some of the stories that came out from yesterday, uh, that sense which is decision-making is not being made at cabinet level or risks not being made at cabinet level and that ownership of policy, if it's being influenced by SPAD, seems to, that sort of blurs the line. So where does the line of accountability lie? Great, thank you. And just to bring in one question from online, which picks up some of the things we've talked about, but um, if ministers are more interested in implementation nowadays, why does government struggle to deliver on big projects like HS2? Are ministers too focused on quick wins? Yeah. Uh, that is from someone anonymous. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't see ministers as chief executives, by the way. And, and you know, my chapter on leading a department goes into in a lot of detail around the concept of dual leadership, uh, as it's been called in one of the... Um, one of the one of the UK government documents, uh, parallel leadership, as the Committee for Standards in Public Life uh, refers to. Um, but I think your idea that the ministers are clients is is quite an interesting one. And if that was inculcated into, you know, culture, um, that would be a good way of looking at it. You know, and your, the client needs are different in different circumstances. The client needs from correspondence section are one thing. The client needs from uh, those controlling the budgets are another, for, you know, different areas of policy are another. But I do think it's a worth, as someone who's been a consultant, it's a, it's a worthwhile way of, of thinking about it. Thinking about it. Um, on the accountability uh, question, I mean, I think the, the formal structures of accountability, when they work, work well. I mean, I've given evidence to... Uh, obviously to scrutiny committees in, the, in, 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 in what is now the Welsh Parliament, but also to select committees of the um, House of Commons as well. Um, and I think that scrutiny process, you know, is part of that for accountability is there. I had never used, I never used, had never used WhatsApp either in private, private or governmental life when I was a, a minister, so I have no experience of, of what the dynamic is changing. I mean, Tim, in a sense, is an expert on this, having written, uh, written extensively about it. Um, but it, it does worry me about not, not so much necessarily the short-term accountability, but um, when, I'm, and when I say short-term, I mean, you know, say the process of a year. But what we're seeing in the COVID inquiry now um, about the role of informal communication um, and how that is being increasingly conducted in small groups of people who are con connecting one to another is, is clearly a major problem. And I, it's bound to come out of, uh, well, I would assume that out of the conclusions of the inquiry, something will be said about the use of WhatsApp in government. You know, the Information Commissioner and others have also got views on, on these matters. Um, so I, I think there is an informality that's come into this process, which is problematic for uh, long-term scrutiny and accounter, ac accountability. Um, yeah, well, I, I said that ministers talk about delivery and implementation a lot more, but it doesn't necessarily mean that delivery has got better. Um, and you're right to raise the, the question of, of HS2. William Hague wrote a very interesting column a couple of months ago, I think it was, in The Times about... Um, you know, it was a good example of where um, people have been moved around in jobs. There would seem to be no long-term management of that program, a single individual. You know, you could hold, really nail, uh, nail, nail down in, in terms of what had gone wrong. Um, Dominic Cummings' uh, tech, uh, WhatsApp messages on this that came out in his blog about uh, 10 days ago were really useful. Funnily enough, I got my students at the beginning of the seminar uh, last week to talk about HS2 as an example of decision-making in government uh, that had gone wrong. Uh, and I brought in the, the Cummings' uh, WhatsApps there about how he wanted to cancel it very early on. Look, I mean, there is a, I think there are, there are significant issues about long-term decision-making and long-term procurement in government. Uh, and I think that does come, I think that's hinted at through the interviews. I don't think it's um, necessarily 
that there is conclusive evidence. One example of where it comes out extensively is in around the discussions of universal credit. Brilliant. All right. Well, I will leave it there. Um, lots of big themes there that I think we'll hopefully pick up on the rest of the today, but also touched on some of our work more generally in terms of thinking about long-term decision-making, about procurement, about the nature of uh, the, the civil services support to ministers and all sorts of other things. So hopefully we'll get into those discussions later, but also please do check out our work online. Um, we have a 15-minute break now. There is more coffee. I heard it being delivered earlier. There's more pastries, I hope. Um, and the next session is in quarter of an hour talking about how the civil service can work well with ministers. So please join me just to finish to thank Leighton. Thank you.